Um, all right, yeah, so as we said uh, at the beginning, this Sunday marks the first week of Advent in the church calendar, and Advent is a word that means arrival or coming, and it's the season of the year when the church looks back on the first arrival of Jesus into our world. And like we said, every good celebration requires some good preparation. And this is when Jesus' family gears up for his birthday party on Christmas morning. We celebrate all that he has done for us. And here's the thing, the unique thing about Jesus' birthday party, unlike my birthday party, is when Jesus has a birthday party, he's the one that shows up with all the gifts for everybody else, okay? I expect to show up to my birthday and you guys bring me gifts. Jesus does it the opposite. And so this is a season of the year where we look forward to celebrating his birthday, but also receiving enjoyment all that he has done for us. It's a celebration of his first arrival. But at the same time, Advent is also a season when we look forward to his second arrival, his second coming. That moment at the end of history, as we know it, when he arrives not as a baby, but as the king, the powerful reigning king of all of creation. That moment when everything hidden comes into the light, when all wrongs are made right, when Jesus' justice will finally reign perfectly. And for that reason, Advent is a season, it's not only a time of celebration, it's also a time of waiting. It's a time of longing. It's, it's even a time of aching for our world to be made right, to be put back together the way it's supposed to be. The psalmist names this ache when he cries out, How long, O Lord? And John, at the very end of the book of Revelation, the final prayer in the whole Bible, gets the spirit of this season when he says, come Lord Jesus. We're waiting for him to arrive and fix it. These two feelings, eager anticipation and an aching longing, at first they kind of seem too far apart, too distant from one another, but then when we start to think about it, man, that describes our world exactly, doesn't it? We're filled with hopes for the future and we're filled with aching in the present. Fleming Rutledge is an Episcopal priest, and in her Advent book, she writes, in a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. This is Advent. And so these four weeks are a deliberate concentration, we could say, and attention to our current collective spiritual moment. We're all living out our lives in this tension. And so for these four weeks, what I want to do is I want to invite you into that spirit of Advent with us here at Grace as we celebrate his birth and look forward to his future arrival. And one of the best ways I know how to do both of those at the same time is to look at some of the parables that Jesus told us during his ministry. Uh, because parables, they're, they're basically Advent training. Okay, if you're going to go to the gym and work out and get ready for Advent, you would read parables. All right, this is exercising our hearts to see Jesus in our midst now, but also uh, to cultivate a longing for his full and final arrival. These were by far Jesus' preferred method of teaching. They were stories, they were um, analogies, metaphors that gave us concrete handles about very complex and spiritual realities like the kingdom of God. It's a story that you rarely understand the first time you read it. 
Okay, it's sort of like, I, I, I think about, about it a couple ways, like a ticking time bomb. You sort of receive this thing and then you read it and you'll say, okay, I think I understand that. And then like a month or two months later or a year later, it'll go off. You'll be like, now I understand it. But it turns out that wasn't even the deepest understanding. N.T. Wright calls Jesus' parables mazes that challenge his followers to work themselves out of the story. Um, they're Advent training. They teach us to receive Jesus now but also to anticipate and long for his full reveal. He's here, but there's always more to ache for. So they work that muscle in our minds that doesn't get a lot of training, waiting with hope. Waiting with hope. Let me read one of Jesus' parables to you from Matthew 13, and we'll look at it for a few minutes together. Starting in verse 24, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, and his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said back to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in, the gathering the, in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. In this parable, Jesus shows us three things. He names a problem that we all know about. He calls for patience while he farms. And he also offers a great promise that we can all look forward to. So a problem, patience, and promise. Jesus acknowledges uh, what we could call the problem of the weeds. This parable is about a question I know you have asked yourself. Every thinking person, every believer and unbeliever alike has asked this question. Last week when I was sitting at lunch at Basalt High School with 30 kids on their lunch break, they get together for a little Bible study, and I asked them, what's the most common objection to Christianity that you have, the most common doubt you have, the most common objection you hear from your friends? Nine out of ten gave this answer. Okay, it is, uh, it's the question we read in verse 27. How does this field have weeds? Okay, it, it's the problem of the weeds. It, it goes by other names, the problem of evil, the problem of pain, the problem of unfair suffering, but whatever you call it, the gist is this. We wake up in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. The workers in the story wake up to a field filled with weeds. They're confused, they're disoriented. We wake up in that same world. We're confused. We're disoriented. Just this morning on my news feed, here are three of the headlines. Just, I mean, this is today. Yesterday was the same. Tomorrow's going to be the same. Nine dead in a South Dakota plane crash. At least 11 people shot in New Orleans late last night. 14 killed in a gunfight in northern Mexico. That was today's headlines. What's tomorrow going to be? This is not the world as it was meant to be. This is broken. This is hard. The most cursory gloss of our world is bleak, and we all know it actually even gets darker than that if we really start to look. Why do such terrible things happen to such good and innocent people? If God created a good world out of the overflow of his love and care and beauty, why so many weeds? What is the problem? And then when we're honest with ourselves, when we tell the truth, 
when we're not too spiritually distracted and we can actually get, get a sense of our own heart, we realize the weeds, they're not just out there. It's not just things you read on the headlines. It's not just other people, other places. The weeds, they're growing up in our hearts too. Um, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a man who spent years in a Russian gulag um, and was intimately familiar with the problem of the weeds, he famously wrote this, the, the line dividing good and evil it doesn't run between different races or nationalities or nation states or eras of history. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a part of his own heart? Right? Why am I anxious? Why do I live in fear? Why can't I finally kick these sinful habits that I've been fighting against so long? Why do I get angry or depressed or jealous? Why can't I stop my destructive behavior? Why do I get so frustrated so fast, so easily? Why am I my own worst enemy? The question that stands at the heart of this parable is all of our questions. Master, did you not sow good seed in this field? How then do we have so many weeds? This is one of the central arguments against Christianity, but let me just say this. That's exactly why I find this parable so comforting. Okay, this is not a question that's leveled against Christianity that Jesus never thought of. Okay, the Bible gives us this problem. The Bible names our doubts for us. The Bible gives us the, the, the objections to it before we've even thought to ask them. It names our doubts before we've even had the doubts ourselves. It doesn't skirt the hardest questions, but literally asks them for us. Okay, the Bible prompts us, it wants us to wrestle with the nittiest, grittiest parts of our heart and our world, because the Bible's about reality. The Bible's not trying to take us to a fairyland where we can escape reality. It's not a medication. It's trying to solve real problems in the real world. It claims to have the answer to the naughtiest questions that we're going to ask. And so it asks real questions for us because it claims to have real answers for our real world. Jesus names the problem of the weeds, and then he goes on, to give us some answers. But his answers, because it's Jesus and because it's a parable, are not always what we would expect or what we think we want at first. His first answer is this. It's very basic. It's only a few words. Verse 28, an enemy has done this. Okay? An enemy has done this. Now, Jesus' short answer tells us some very important things right off the bat. Evil is real. Uh, God does not cause it, but he is still sovereign over it. He's in control of his field. Beyond this, we learn surprisingly little about the beginnings of this problem, the beginnings of the problem of the weeds in our world. We would like to know so much more. I mean, where did Satan come from? Okay, How did he even begin to sow evil? Where was that first spark of bad in a world that was made totally good? Jesus doesn't answer all of these questions for us. He's content to name the guilty party, reveal God's holiness, and explain that despite all the weeds in his field, he's still at work in the world. And at first pass, the answer we get, it just seems too short, too small, insufficient. It seems far short of what we need to know. But as we let the rest of his answer sink in, um, and we let this story marinate, I think we see that the, it's the answer we ultimately need. It's the answer that becomes incredibly hopeful as we work our way out of this maze that Jesus has made for us. You see, the origin of evil, that's a difficult intellectual question. We could debate that one all day. But the next question the servants ask is a difficult emotional question 
for all of us. The servants asked next, well, do you want us to go and pull them out then? I mean, yeah, okay, like however it all got started, who knows how it got started. The reality that evil is here, chaos is here, hurt is here. Should we go fix it for you? We got your back. Okay, that's their question. Should we go solve this problem? And when he says no, then we really start to irk against what Jesus is up to here. We were like, what? you're in control of everything. Why not fix it? Why not go do something? You have the power to sort it all out right now. This question, more than the first, I think is the real crisis of faith for a lot of us. One commentator put it this way. It seems weak of Jesus to forbid the next logical step of separating the weeds from the wheat. To coexist with evil rather than to cancel evil seems compromising. It seems inconsequent and ineffectual. That Jesus stops short of this consequence, that he dooms us seemingly to a kind of perpetual irrelevance by telling us not to fight these evils to the death, this fact constitutes the great offense about Jesus to so many. The scandal, the unacceptable weakness of a Lord who otherwise has so many wise and great things to say. You might feel this way, even today. I often do. Frustrated with the perpetual, persistent, sort of unrelenting ways the world is not the way it's supposed to be, and angry that God seems so quiet, even absent in the midst of it. And this is where that subtle answer of Jesus' parable, I think, begins to emerge into a great hope. Verse 30, he says, let both grow together until the harvest. How is this good news? How is this the answer that we need to hear? Here's why. God is at work in his field right now, okay? He's growing up his kingdom. He's sovereignly, perfectly, in all wisdom and all power, he's farming. If something happens in this field, in his world, it's because it happens with his knowledge and under his authority. Nothing is an accident in God's world. God is at work and he's farming. I'm not a farmer, but I know some farmers. And farming is slow work, okay? Farming is slow. It wasn't too long ago that when I got online, when all of us got online, unless you're one of those millennials, am I right? Um, That when you got online, and when I got online, we literally had to wait for our computer to call a telephone to then connect us to the World Wide Web, okay? It took like 30 seconds, and it blew all of our minds. There were these crazy noises, and it got us all excited. If my computer takes 30 seconds to do anything today, I've already shut it down, sent the bug to Apple, got a cup of coffee, and I'm back at my computer. Um, Today, fast is in, and slow is out. Okay, Um, it's not just true in the high speed world of tech either. David Brooks is a columnist for The New York Times, and he was writing about the economic recession in 2009. And he said this time horizons have shrunk. If you were an old blue blood, you traced your lineage back centuries and there was a decent chance that you'd hand your company down to members of your own clan that subtly encouraged long term thinking. Now people respond to ever faster performance criteria. Daily stock prices are tracking polls, and this um, perversely encourages reckless behavior. To leave a mark in a fast-paced competitive world, leaders seek to hit grandiose home runs. There's less emphasis on steady, gradual change and more emphasis on the big swing 
This produces more spectacular failures and more uncertainty. Across nearly every category of our lives today and culture, we find an emphasis on the immediate, the now, the new, the fresh. Twitter and Facebook feeds were our intro drug. Now the popular apps have pictures that literally disappear the second that you see them, okay? Nothing lasts anymore. The things that seem to matter in our world are the things that happen immediately, and things don't last very long. This is why Jesus' answer to the problem of the weeds seems weak at first. Fix it now. Where are you? Why the distance? Why the waiting? But Jesus is showing his followers that the kingdom way is not always the immediate way. The kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of which you're a citizen, if you're his follower, it starts quietly like a seed and grows slowly and incrementally, almost unnoticeably. But he also tells us, that the power of God himself is in the world at work right now. He's planted good crops. He's established a good kingdom. He's brought together his people, and they're extending his love and his grace in the world. And even though we can't see it, it's at work in thousands of little ways, but it's hard to see because it's like watching a plant grow. You can't see it happen. But over time, the power of that field, the power of his kingdom extends. The gospel reaches into hearts, it reaches into families, it reaches into communities, and it transforms them. It changes us. And we find ourselves today in the messy middle of Jesus' plan, don't we? He's arrived, he's planted the field, he's established his kingdom, but he's not yet here to collect the harvest. We're stuck in the middle, and in that messy middle, it's disorienting, it's confusing, it's two steps forward, one step back. The life following Jesus is not one of continual victory and triumph. It was, if it was pitched to you that way, I'm sorry, it's not that. Jesus says his kingdom grows differently than that. Why does he do it that way? Well, we don't know. We don't know entirely, but there are lines in the Bible, there are hints about what he's up to even while we wait with him. Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Waiting with Jesus in a world of weeds, according to the Bible, it's a school of faith. It's how he's growing, not only extending his kingdom out there, but it's how he's extending his kingdom in here. It's how he's growing us up to follow him. He's poured his love into our hearts. And the beautiful thing about living in the messy middle is that it's only the middle, okay? And this is Jesus' second answer to the problem of the weeds. Have patience. That it might not look like stuff's happening, but stuff's happening. I'm at work. I'm growing my field. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. Trust me. Wait it out with me. And it's going to be over one day soon. You see, this growing season is just a season, but there will come a time for the harvest. The parable itself is heavy on that messy middle, the time between the advents, but Jesus explains his parable to his followers, and the tone changes considerably. Listen to this. Skip ahead a few verses to verse 36. He left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. You know, we heard you, but we still don't know what you're talking about, as they often do. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. 
The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will, they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and in the righteous they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is Jesus' promise of a certain future as we follow him, as we stick with him, as we trust his word is true. One day, the confusion, the ambiguity, the difficulty that defines our current age, it'll be taken away. Things will be clear. The two kingdoms will be obvious. They won't be all mixed together. The weeds will be removed. Jesus will enter this world, this world decisively. He will gather out of his kingdom all the causes of sin, he says. The day that Jesus rose victoriously from death, uh, from the grave, the, the power of sin and evil in the world was broken. Never again was it a contest, okay? That was D-Day. The, the decisive victory was won. It's just a matter of time till it plays out. But one day he's saying, so now the power of sin has been removed. One day he's saying the very presence of sin will be removed. It, we'll finish it up. We'll tie a bow on it. The, the, the story will be perfect. The righteous, he says, will shine like the sun. Jesus is making a promise to complete his kingdom. He's promising a world without any of the headlines that we just read. And everything will shine with goodness, with righteousness, with purity. And he's saying that you and I can understand the world where we live in now. We can endure with him. We can wait with Jesus for Jesus, because we know how it all ends. It's something like, it's not exactly, but it's something like a POW who's been imprisoned during a war, okay? And he's suffering, and, and his life is hard, and he's stuck there. But over the months, he and his buddies, you know, MacGyver style, managed to get all these little pieces together, and they put a little radio together, and they're listening at night in the quiet of their bunks to the news of the outside world. And they don't experience any of that outside reality yet. Their reality is still stuck in this place. But they get word that their side has won and that their, um, their freedom is imminent. And within a week, maybe days, everything will be different. Now, nothing about their actual circumstances has changed. They still sleep in the same bunks, eat the same terrible food, are still mistreated by their captors, but everything has changed, hasn't it? They now wait with an anticipation and a longing that has a totally different character than it did even a week before because they know the future, and they know that everything will be put right very, very soon. The difference between waiting with Jesus and waiting alone is that we know how the story ends and we can trust his certain promises about how it will all pan out. And one practical application, we'll finish with this, for us today about knowing how the story ends is this actually gives us a great freedom, doesn't it? It gives us a great freedom. Jesus says he will judge and remove evil totally. And as we believe this promise that Jesus can distribute his justice far more perfectly than we can distribute our justice, with his perfect knowledge, as opposed to our imperfect knowledge, his perfect wisdom. Um, consider the freedom of that. We're free to not have to defend our own rights to the death right now. We can let him sort it out. He says, let the wheat and the weeds grow up together. It's the messy middle. 
I'll sort it out in the end. We're free not to judge others and try to balance the scales as we see fit because we know that Jesus can balance them all perfectly in the end. This is the hope of the judgment of God. We can wait with Jesus without anxiety and without fear because if the farmer can guarantee his future crop, then we can leave the weeding to him. The great news of the gospel in this parable is that Jesus does not leave us alone here in the world. In an act of undeserved love, God sent his son into a world full of weeds, and he experienced the full weight of them. All of the difficulty and the suffering we ever experience, he has as well. And he suffered so that he might take us out of it one day so that we can flourish like him in his family, in his kingdom forever. He died that we might live. And out of the wellspring of all that resurrection life, he is at work in the world right now, and he promises to nurture and expand and grow his kingdom. That's the promise of the gospel. The good farmer is growing his crop. The mess will be cleared up one day, and until then, we can wait in a hopeful faith, already knowing what promise awaits those who are with Jesus. And that's an Advent kind of waiting. That's what this season is about. It's the groaning, hopeful, celebrating, anticipating, longing, aching kind of waiting. That's waiting with Jesus for Jesus to come. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this parable. Um, I pray it gets stuck in our brains like a time bomb. And that uh, as we think about what you've shared with us today, it would work on us. It would train our hearts to enjoy your presence with us now, to trust your power and your sovereignty, to, to receive your grace as we go day to day through the messy middle of our world, but also to long and to cultivate a joy for your coming world that will make everything clear and beautiful and right. God, train our hearts to long for you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.